What's up, everybody? Pastor Matt here. Thank you so much for checking into the podcast of Gospel Fellowship PCA. Hey, listen, what if I told you that there is a solid, biblical, doctrinally faithful, reformed church on a beautiful campus just a stone's throw north of Pittsburgh? Yeah, we don't have a Starbucks in the lobby. Sorry about that. We don't have a fog machine. We don't have an American Idol stage with laser lights shooting all around. But we do have the sweetest, kindest people in the world. We sing the Psalms and classic hymns of the faith. We preach the Bible chapter by chapter. We believe the whole thing's true. We love Jesus. We're on a mission to share the good news of the gospel with the world. Would you be interested in a church like that? Well, come check us out, Gospel Fellowship PCA in Valencia, Pennsylvania. Please feel free to visit our website at gospelfellowshippca.org and subscribe to our YouTube channel, Gospel Fellowship Presbyterian Church. All right, thank you so much. Here's today's message. Let's grab our Bibles. We're in Isaiah chapter 43 today. We're going to be reading just seven verses of this beautiful text. It's a marvelous text. Isaiah 43, 1-7. When you find it, let's go ahead and stand up together as... Believers, for we recognize that God's word is holy, it is inspired, inerrant, and infallible, the very word of the great and living God, the only living God to his people. Isaiah 43, verse 1. Listen now to the word. But now, thus says the Lord who created you, O Jacob, who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba, in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Verse 5, fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west. I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created from my glory, whom I formed And made thus far is the reading of God's holy word. Amen. You may be seated. The the modern, secular, and in my view, very pernicious and dangerous doctrine of intersectionality, it's a term that you've probably heard recently. Uh, The doctrine of intersectionality attempts, by very definition, to categorize people into kinds and types. Uh, to form us into lines and put us into categories so that society can think of us and put us into the right boxes. Now, you know what boxes I'm referring to, probably if you've heard anything about intersectionality. The first thing that this secular view wants to know is what race are you? What color are you? We want to get you in the right line so we can know where to put you in society. And then after that, we're going to need to know your sex and your gender. Uh, We're going to need to know uh, your class, that is to say, where you are on the spectrum of wealth as a continuum. Uh, We're going to need to know other things like uh, your immigration status or your ability or your inability. And the whole doctrine of 
this intersectionality concept, in my view, is very, very dangerous. Because the very point is to label some people as privileged on one side and oppressed on the other, so that way we can sort of tilt the scale of societal influence and exalt the voices of some while diminishing the voices of others. In my view, this is a very dangerous idea. And it's everywhere. And we're going to talk about this in a couple of lectures that I'm going to do in June. And I'd like to invite you to that and that you would invite others to hear something better because the gospel provides for us a better way to think about humanity. Let's just talk for a second about race before we get into Isaiah chapter 43. How often is it that the Bible even speaks of one's physical appearance? Let's start with that. Can you think of many people in the Scriptures that the Bible describes what they look like? Is that something that the Bible values? Is that something that the Bible places much emphasis on? In my view, the answer is no. Now, there are certain people that are described from a physical perspective in the Scriptures, but always and only when their physical appearance is directly related to the narrative itself. So we need to know that Absalom had big, beautiful hair. Otherwise, how did he end up in the tree, right? And we need to know that Esther was a beautiful woman, woman, else how did she win the beauty contest? We need to know that Saul was a foot taller than everyone else because that's directly relevant to his appearance as a king. But how many others of the people in Scripture are even described physically? Very, very few. Very few. We have no physical description of Peter. We have no physical description of Paul. We have nothing about what Moses looked like or Adam. Or how about this? Even our Lord Jesus Christ. In the Gospels, we have zero about what Jesus looked like. Where is the emphasis in Scripture on these matters? The emphasis is on the heart. It seems to me that the whole weight of the biblical testimony about who you are and what you believe and how you act is not determined by these artificial categories, superficial as they may be, in intersectional theory, but rather the whole emphasis on Scripture is related to this question, who you are in relationship to the great and living God. That is the question of pertinence in Scripture. Are you related to Him savingly or no? And so this morning, let's let Isaiah the prophet speak a better word to us than the secular, atheistic, views of modern man today. Let's let Isaiah speak a better word about who we are and what has happened to us since we came into saving faith through Jesus Christ. So our text this morning is Isaiah 43, a text, by the way, that has almost universal applicability to believers throughout the ages. Now, John Calvin himself says that it's pretty hard to even figure out what the historical context of Isaiah chapter 43, is because it speaks to essentially every Christian in every age. We do have one hint, though, of the historical situation of this prophecy. That hint is in verse uh, 14 of chapter 43. You see here the reference to being sent to Babylon. Now, as I've tried to describe so far in this Isaiah series, much of the earlier parts of the book, Isaiah is talking about his own day and time, right? 
And then as the prophecy moves forward and further into the book, Isaiah lifts up his view. Now Isaiah is prophesying towards events that are after his own time, namely the exile and captivity in Babylon. Uh, 586 to 516 BC, this is after Isaiah's own life, but he's speaking a word that's of particular hope and encouragement to those remnant faithful who are taken into captivity in in Babylon and need a word of faithfulness from the Lord. That's the historical setting. But remember, as Calvin said, this applies to all believers. And so as we work through this text this morning, these uh, seven verses, we're going to be looking at three things that the Bible says about us as believers. We're not looking for race. We're not looking for class. We're not looking for these superficial things. Let's put that away for now. But instead, let's focus on what Scripture focuses on, these three things that describe us as believers. I'm going to give them to you. One, two, three. Uh, First of all, let's start with this. Number one, you, believer, are created. You are a creature. Look at verse one in your text. By the way, we're just going through the Scripture verse by verse this morning. But the first thing that Isaiah reminds the exiles... Of those hopeful remnant, he says in verse 1 that you are created. Look at the text. But now, thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I've called you by name. You are mine. This is an incredible text, isn't it? I love this text. And the first thing that Isaiah says is, You are a creature. You are created by God. Now, in that, in that we are created beings, we have that in common with everything else that God ever made, okay? Because there's a creator-creation distinction, and we are the creation. So we have that in common with the unbelievers. We are creatures just as the mountains and the rocks and uh, the kitty cats and the kangaroos and the Grand Canyon and the furthest star and the, the most furious Raging against God, unbeliever, we're still in the same category with them because we're creatures we've been made. Okay? So far, uh, not much difference. Now, now, perhaps we might say this. We might say, though, that we're different from the non-sentient beings like, uh, like rocks and kangaroos because at least as sentient creatures, we recognize our own creatureliness. Okay? We can cognizantly identify that we've been made. Not only that, but we are also distinct from the unbelievers because not only can we recognize that we are created, but we rejoice in this truth, whereas the unbeliever does not. In fact, he seems to be kicking against it. He wants to be God. He wants to be on equal par with God. But we're creations, and we recognize, and we rejoice in that. Now look carefully at the words here. Um, I don't mean to bore you with some of the details, but there is something interesting here, even in the Hebrew language. Uh, In verse 1, when it says, you are created, he who created you, might want to underline that in your Bible. That's a unique Hebrew word. It's the word bara. Now, you don't need to remember that necessarily. Just remember this about the word created right here in 43.1, is that this word is only and always used for the action of God. Okay? No mortal, no other person, no other creature has ever said to bara anything. Because to bara something means to call it into existence originally. And you and I can't do that. We can reconfigure matter. We can build things out of Legos. We can make things out of clay. We can build houses. But we can't bara 
anything because only God can speak matter and reality into existence. So the Hebrew word bara, when it says that you are created, it's a word that demonstrates his utter and complete power as the sovereign God over all that he has made. Now watch this carefully though, because the word formed here, same verse, he who created you, that's bara, but he who formed you, that's a different word in the Hebrew. So we got two words going on here. This word yatsar is something that a mortal can do because this word has to do more with with forming something with the hands. It's the word that's commonly used uh, to describe the work of a potter on the potter's wheel. And so this word, rather than conveying power necessarily like bara, this word conveys intimacy, carefulness. Uh, This is the work of an artist. This is the work of one who's, who's very careful and delicate with their medium. And so you see when you have both of these words together in close proximity, the idea is conveyed that God is not only a powerful God, but he's also a caring, doting, compassionate God who forms us for his very purposes. So uh, uh, bara, that's the word in Genesis 1-1, God created the heavens and the earth. But formed here, this is the same word of, of Genesis 2-7, where it says that God took man from the dust and formed him and breathed life into him. You see the intimacy there. And so the very fact that we recognize our creatureliness, this is a high-yield doctrine for us Christian believers. This has incredible ramifications for us because, one, it means that God has total control over my life right? Like he's the one who's directing all of history. He's the one who's guiding my destiny. And not only that, uh, but I must submit to him as a creature. I must yield to his moral commands. So this has ethical implications for us as creatures because if God commands, then we have no other choice but to obey and comply. And further, if God is our creator and the one who formed us, then he gets to determine what our purpose is in life, not us. And this actually turns out to be a philosophical idea that's very, very key, especially as we see this strange new movement taking place afoot in our culture today. There is a philosophy that you need to be aware of called existentialism. Now, existentialism is an idea that actually undergirds the postmodernism of the previous time, and now the overarching new critical theory of today, which we're going to be discussing in that lecture series, which I'm going to do. I want to explain how this works to you, though, that existentialism is the root idea beneath postmodernism and critical theory that says essentially this, you can define your purpose for yourself. In fact, you must, because nobody else can do it for you. The idea of existentialism is that you create your own purpose and steer your own destiny. Now, if you've said to yourself recently, in recent times, like, how is it that we lost our moorings on what it even means to be gendered? Because in the scripture and in history, it's been so utterly clear that there are only two genders. And now they're telling us that there's 50 or 100 or 77 or however many they think they are. How did they get that? Where did they come up with this? Answer, existentialism. Because in existentialism, no external force, person, authority, or God can tell you who you are or what you are. You decide that for yourself. And so if you decide you're this, then who is anybody to challenge? That's existentialism. And now we're seeing this fully seeping through almost every 
aspect of our cultural society today. Okay? That's why it's so dangerous. But we recognize that we are created. In fact, as creatures then, if He determines our purpose, then it is given to us in Scripture. And what is our purpose? Well, look at verse 7. And notice, by the way, the parallelism between verse 1 in our text and verse 7 later on in the text. We see the same pairing of Hebrew words in verse 7. Everyone who is called by my name, who I created for my glory, there's Barah again, that original powerful God only can do this type of creation. Whom I formed, there's that intimacy word that the potter uses that I formed and made. So what is our purpose there in verse 7? Well, it's to give him glory. Anything else than that, and you're already off track. You were made to give God glory and for no other reason. Number one, you are created. Number two, believer, you are redeemed. You are redeemed. This is the second main point this morning. For I have redeemed you. We're still in verse 1. I have called you by name. You are mine. Notice how he calls us by name. Though there are billions of us, yet he knows each one of us intimately. The Scripture also says, by the way, he knows the names of all the stars. Billions and billions and trillions and trillions of stars. He knows them all. But this word here, redeemed, circle that one in your Bible as well, is a word of particular power and beauty for us who are saved because to be redeemed means to be ransomed. Uh, The word redeemed means to be bought back or to be purchased or to be granted a freedom that one did not have prior. Of course, we see this word with relationship to God ransoming His people Israel out of slavery in Egypt. The word a redeemed is a special word used very often in the books of Leviticus, for one, and the book of Ruth, for another. Uh, book of Ruth, have you read that recently? Beautiful story. The uh, book of Ruth is that story of the Moabitess uh, who has married a person from Bethlehem. He dies, she becomes a widow. There's a great famine, the, fa- the family struggles incredibly, and then she comes back Uh, to Bethlehem, which for her is a foreign people, for her family, that's their hometown. And she comes back as a widow, one who has nothing, one who has very little power. You want to talk about somebody who's oppressed or uh, in a difficult way, it's Ruth in the Old Testament. And then she meets this incredible, noble, faithful believer named Boaz. Do you remember the story? And Boaz, as her kinsman redeemer, he has the right to redeem her by taking her to himself as his wife. And so uh, Scripture tells us here in Isaiah 43 that you too have been redeemed to a greater Boaz. You have been purchased. You have been ransomed. You have been bought back. And so uh, for for the Israelites here, perhaps in the context of the Babylonian captivity, they would have drawn great encouragement from the fact that God has already once redeemed His people from slavery in Egypt. In fact, it even refers to this in verse 3. Look at verse 3 in your text, Isaiah chapter 43. It says, For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba, in exchange for you. Now, what in the world does that mean? How is it that God gave Egypt as a ransom for Israel? Well, think back to that great deliverance motif of the Red Sea, right? And God has just poured out 
ten plagues upon the Egyptians. And what did God do? He brought his people faithfully through the Red Sea. Did the water touch them? No, it did not. God delivers them through this incredible miracle, the quintessential miracle of the Old Testament. God delivers them through the Red Sea, and he's holding up by his own power the walls of the water, protecting them. But then, when the Egyptians come in, remember when the Egyptians come in to follow? They're pursuing, they're eager to destroy, to catch up to the Israelites. When they pass through the Red Sea, what happens? God collapses the channels upon them and drowns them in a deluge of judgment. And so in this way, Isaiah says, God gave them as a ransom price for your freedom. That's the idea here in 43.3. But we Christians, right? we too have been ransomed, haven't we? We've been ransomed with an even greater price and an even greater cost. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18-20 to 20 says this, um, Listen, you know that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold. That wouldn't even be enough. Okay, your ransom, Christian believer, was not bought through money, but with a substance far more precious than that, if you can imagine something more precious than silver or gold. What is it, Peter? Well, he says in 1 Peter 1, verse 19, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. You are saved, Christian, because you've been ransomed through the higher cost of the very blood of Christ Himself. You've been purchased. You've been redeemed. Now, this text uh, just keeps getting better and better. This, this is why this is some people's favorite Bible passage. Look at, look at verse 2. You're going to love this. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you does not your heart swell within you when you hear those words look at him again when you pass through the waters okay so when not if right it's like psalm 23 though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death not if not maybe not someday but when it's a certainty but when this happens uh, well something's not going to come with it what's not going to happen when you pass through the waters is that they are not going to overwhelm you And when you pass through the fire, second part of verse 2, you're not going to be burned or consumed. So that's good news to the believer. In fact, there's a couple of ways that we can interpret this passage. Uh, Let me me suggest a couple of possibilities for us. I, I think they're both completely valid, so I'm not in preference to one over the other. But let me give you a couple of possibilities here for what this water and fire imagery stands for. Uh, The one possibility is that we're talking here about sufferings in life. We're talking about sufferings, perhaps. And if that's true, if we're talking about the Lord is with us in the sufferings of our lives, then water and fire is sort of uh, like a merism. Now, do you remember what a merism is? I forgot the word. I had to ask David earlier this week. A merism is a literary expression that means everything from A to Z. Or sometimes we say from top to bottom or from head to toe. It's the idea of everything within this whole spectrum or continuum of possibilities. A merism. Everything from water on one side to fire on the other. Because water and fire are opposites, right? 
And if that's the idea here, then what God is saying is that there is no amount of suffering, trial, or difficulty that he will not stand with you in the midst of. So I like this interpretation, and you probably do too, because now I'm thinking of passages like uh, Daniel chapter 3. You may have some idea where I'm going with this. Where the Lord is present with his people in the midst of the fire. Do you remember the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from Daniel chapter 3? Great Old Testament story. Great Old Testament story. You recall Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, faithful servants of the Lord. There's one thing, though, that they will not do. They will not bow down to the idol temple god of the pagans. That they will not do. And so they are threatened, and they are cajoled, and they are bullied, and yet, nevertheless, they will not bow the knee to the idol temple god of the pagans. They won't do it. And so what does the scripture say? It happens to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Well, it says this in Daniel chapter 3. If this be so, well, this is, the, this is the, the faithful speaking here. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. And so what they do in Daniel 3, and we're not going to read all of it, I promise, uh, is they heat up the furnace seven times hotter than usual. So hot, in fact, that guards are dropping down at the near approach of the furnace. Okay? Guards are being overwhelmed. Okay? They're being singed. They're being burned. And yet, when they throw the three faithful into the fiery furnace, look at verse 25 of Daniel chapter 3. If you have the text open, it says, He answered and said, But I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the God. So even King Nebuchadnezzar must acknowledge that the very angel of the presence of God, the angel of the Lord, this, this theophanic manifestation of God's presence is standing with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the furnace. And then uh, verse 27, then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and not even the smell of fire was upon them. Isn't that great? He will be with you in the fire, says Isaiah. And not only that, but he will be with you in the waters. Now, there's a number of passages we might think about uh, in pertinence to waters. We might think of God delivering uh, through the Jordan River, perhaps, when they brought the ark into the promised land. But we might also think of this one. How about Matthew chapter 14? You want to turn there with me quickly? Matthew 14. Here's this incredible passage in which Jesus stuns the disciples with his walking on the water. He comes out to them, Matthew chapter 14, verses 22 to 33, and he's walking on the water, and they're absolutely amazed by this, and all of the disciples are, are essentially cowering in fear. They think he's a ghost in verse 26, but Jesus says, take heart at his eye, don't be afraid. And then one of the disciples, you know, it's Peter, right? Because Peter always does stuff like this. He raises his hand and he basically says, Lord, let me come out on the waters. And, and surprisingly, Jesus permits him to do so. And Peter, you've got you to just imagine he bragged about this for the rest of his life, right? 
Because he would do that. Peter asks for permission to come out onto the waters. But, look at verse 29. He said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and he walked on the water and he came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Now watch this. Next verse. Verse 31. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? I've always loved that passage because it, like, wouldn't you think that it would be Peter reaching out to Jesus and not what you'd picture? That is Peter sinking down, he'd be the one to reach out to Jesus, but that's not what the text says. The text says that it was Jesus who reached out his hand and took hold of him. Even more secure. Okay, your grip is only so strong to hold on to Jesus. His grip is omnipotently strong to hold on to you when you're sinking. And so there's some sense in which Isaiah is talking about the Lord's presence with us when we are suffering. But I think there's another possibility that we might be able to take this text redemptive historically as well. So look again at verse 2. We're back in our main text, Isaiah chapter 43. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned and the flame shall not consume you. So there's a possibility here that Isaiah is actually not talking about sufferings, but judgments. But judgments. If that's true, then he may be referring back to the deliverance of Noah and his family in the day of that great worldwide deluge where the Lord drowns all of uh, those wicked generation and he saved through his covenantal promises Noah and his family. So there might be a sense in which Isaiah is looking back to the flood and then what would the fire be then? Forward to the judgment that is to come. And so, in either case then, the point here is, is something like as 2 Peter 3 makes, because in 2 Peter chapter 3, you'll notice that Peter draws together these images of water and fire in a, in a judgmental motif. Let me read this text to you. He says, that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water, so there's our water judgment, and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now existed are stored up for fire. There's the future judgment being kept until the day of judgment in the destruction of the ungodly. If the judgment interpretation is right, then what we're saying here is that God is going to be with us to save and to deliver us even through the fire judgment that is to come at the end of all things. And that's another significant and glorious promise that we hold on to as believers. So is it, su- is it sufferings or is it judgments? Either way, I think both interpretations work here and both of them are highly encouraging to the believer. Now, before we close up this morning, I want to point out one more thing. So we've already talked about the fact that we are created as Christians. In fact, like all things God has made, we are created. He determines our purpose for us. We talk secondly about his redemption for us in and through Christ. Now let's third mention the fact that you are loved. Look at verse 4. You are loved, verse 4, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, I love you. Please don't think that because I put this third that this is any less significant. In fact, it's hard to even 
talk about ranking these three truths about us. Created, redeemed, loved. How can you rank that? You can't rank that. You're loved. This is every preacher's primary duty is to not only exposit the scriptures and uh, to warn of our need for repentance, but also to simply remind believers that you're loved. This is what is essentially true about you, you see? Now, if it's true that you're loved and you are in the gospel, then what are these other categories that the unbelieving world wants to place upon us? They're nothing. What, what difference is the external superficialities of your physical appearance if it's true that the Lord loves you? Totally irrelevant compared. Totally irrelevant. Now, we wouldn't be surprised if the Scripture says that God loves His own glory because it does say that several times, that God loves His glory. Uh, we wouldn't be surprised if we heard the Scripture saying things like, the Father loves the Son, loves the Holy Spirit, loves the Father, because that's Trinitarian theology. But what, what should come as still somewhat, somewhat of an astonishing truth to us is that God actually loves us. Because we don't deserve it, right? We know that. Barry did an awesome job in the baptism reminding us of that, even from the smallest child. We... We are unworthy recipients and vessels of his love. And yet the truth of the gospel is that despite your every rebellion, (laughs) despite the fact that we continue to break his law over and over again, even after we're saved, okay, despite the fact that we've broken every one of his commandments, if not with the body, at least with the mind, if not with the mind, at least in the heart, the stunning truth of the gospel is that he still loves us. Christians. Now let's just meditate this on this for just a moment before we, before we wrap up. Let me say a few things about the love that he has for you. First, he loved you before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1.5. That means before he made a thing, he already loved you. Okay, so this is an eternal predestining type of love, Ephesians 1. He loved you in your mother's womb, Psalm 139. He loved you when you were yet sinners, Romans 5.8. He loved you even as he was dying for us on the cross because John 15.13 says, Greater love has no man than this, that he lays down his life for his friends. He loved you before you loved him, 1 John 4.19. So let's not have a category confusion here and think that his love is a response to us first loving him. No, that'd be to say it exactly backwards. We love him because he first loved us, 1 John 4.19. He loves you at your worst moments. He loves you at your best. He loves you in the fire. He loves you through the water. And he will love you all the way until he returns to gather his elect. And that's exactly the picture here. In verses 5 and 6, notice what Isaiah is doing. He's describing this recollection of the exiles. Of course, this pertains to those exiles in Babylon, but there's something greater and bigger here happening in verses 5 and 6. Look at this. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west. I will gather you up from the north 
And I will say to the south, do not withhold, bring my sons from afar, my daughters from the ends of the earth. Until the day that the Lord comes back to gather his elect from all over the face of planet earth, his love will sustain you until that moment. And then into eternity as well. So what good are these superficial categories to us? Nothing. You are created. You are redeemed. You are loved. That's who you are. Think like it and act like it. Let's stand up and sing our final hymn as we close this morning. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine upon you and give you his peace. May the Lord lift his countenance upon you and grant you his favor in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace. Hi, everybody. My name is Rob, and I am a deacon at Gospel Fellowship PCA. I'm also the sound engineer, the camera guy, and the podcast manager. Thank you so much for listening to today's message please come visit us in person. Gospel Fellowship is a Bible-believing church just north of Pittsburgh, and you can find us at gospelfellowshippca.org. See you next time.